Anani said, my name is Peter. I'd like to focus on an aspect of how yoga changed my life and why. And that aspect is that it answered all my questions, that there were unsatisfactory things I saw in the world. And yoga and its way of looking at the world answered and addressed all those dissatisfactions. And of course, yoga has made me a more peaceful, open, happy, loving person. But it's also because of that worldview, that truth that makes sense, that allows me to keep on those practices. Because as, as Yogananda said, environment is stronger than willpower. And we've created a wonderful environment here this week. We've dealt with the teachings from our masters, this truth that has come through them in this age that we can relate to. We're getting it. We're in taking it in. It's becoming part of us. But that's not the general worldview, the general way of looking at things in the world. Unless you think this is different, okay, what if you went out of Ananda's entrance and you stopped at the first group of people you saw? You'd probably be at Mother Trucker's Market <laughs> a mile down the road. And I can tell you the consciousness at Mother Trucker's Market is not the same as the consciousness here in this amphitheater right now. And as you move back into your lives, if you move back into the world, there's going to be these influences on you. So I think it's important, I know it's important for me to keep reminding myself of these truths that these masters have brought. And as the hermit said in the peace treaty to one of his profound lines among many, said, truth is not something that's up for vote. Truth simply is. Realize oneness with it in yourself, as we say every, every Sunday service. Become part of that truth. Well, we can't see that truth all that well. We can't see it all that perfectly. But we can keep reminding ourselves, OK, which is closer to truth? And which way do I want to go? Is it the ways of this world out there? Or is it the things we've been seeing here today? So I want to focus on some experiences in my life that I keep needing to remind myself of. And they, there were three basic worldviews or gestalts that I was exposed to at times and that were dissatisfactory to me and that I overcame, but are still pulling there. And I can understand them because of the truth of yoga. The first is, uh, American Christianity or modern Christianity. The second is a rational materialist approach to the world. And the third is a moral imperative to change the world, to do social change. So the first one I'll deal with is the Christian world. I was grew up in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, and we went to the First Presbyterian Church of Poughkeepsie, New York, and we went every single week to church to that. And it was wonderful. We learned in Sunday school about the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and we went to the church service and sat through many wonderful sermons and learned all these great things of how we should live our life. And though when I look back at that, my overall reaction is one of, this was completely irrational and completely irrelevant to my life. And when I sat in church and listening to those sermons, I can tell you more about what the ceiling of that church looks like <laughs> than anything that they said in the sermons. It has these blue background, little curlicues. The four apostles were all in the corners. I can even tell you how many curlicues were next to St. James. And what I really learned more, as Gandhi was talking about, what I learned, when I look back, the main thing my Christian upbringing brought me was tiktiksha. I managed to <laughs> sit still through all those sermons and didn't remember anything. 
Well, well, why? I mean, it's wonderful. Jesus was a master. He brought these things. This Christianity, there's truth there. It's a wonderful thing. It's one of the hopes for this world. 80% of Americans still identify with some part of the Christian faith, and over half of those still go to church regularly. I mean, this is important. People are exposed to it. But, you know, we repeat. We repeat the Apostles' Creed, as I believe in God Almighty, the Father, is one Son, Jesus Christ, who is born of the, conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That creed came from 300, 400 A.D. We're still repeating it. Nobody made the relationship to me about how did that deal with science? How did the fact that we had this book that was translated into umpteen different languages by unenlightened people was going to be the word of God? It's this historical document that got modified all over the years. How are we going to, how are we going to do miracles? How did that apply to science? How's there, what's a virgin birth? What's a resurrection? How does this all work? Well, it was irrelevant in the rest of my life until the teachings of Yogananda came in and Kriyananda, the explanations of Christianity. Yes, it did go through Kali Yuga, but there's truth there. You can do miracles. If you're in tune with a higher power, if you're in tune with what's around you, those miracles can be done. The Bible has deep truths, but it got modified over the years. So what? Go into that. But in any way, I basically... And actually, the, the last thing that was so, that made it so disillusioning was that nobody else seemed to care about these contradictions. My parents dragged all four of our kids to church every single week for two hours. But it didn't really affect much in their lives. They didn't have any enthusiasm for this. They didn't tell me that I should live my life this way. We prayed before meals. But other than that, it was two hours in church, and we'll put it on the shelf till we come back next time. <laughs> And that was it. And if, you know, if there'd been some enthusiasm, if there'd been somebody there who said, like some people, like many Christians are, if they said, you know, there's some meaning to this, I might have embraced it. But I completely rejected it. There has got to be the point where I didn't want to hear the word God. Jesus, I thought, was a hoax. I mean, I came up for confirmation. I'm going in my mind, you know, they made this up. Jesus didn't really exist. I mean, this was not, you know. So anyway, I rejected it. And what do you turn to then? You turn to the next way of looking at the world. And that's the rational materialist approach. So that's the dominant world cultural paradigm around us. It says that man is the pinnacle, the human is the pinnacle of the evolution. Things are all moving upward <laughs> through our rational thought processes. We can understand the world through the scientific investigation. Once we understand the world, we can control the world. We can control the world to get what we want out of the world. We can fulfill all our desires. We can get more of the basic necessities. We can get more pleasure. We can get more cars. We can get bigger houses. We can get more stuff. <laughs> and once you have more stuff and more desires fulfilled, you're going to be happier. Now, we are overlaid on this. That's not just enough. In our current system, we have overlaid on that an economic system that says if everybody goes after exactly what they want and makes more money and gets more stuff, that's going to be the best for everybody because everybody will have more stuff to go around. And then, that's not all of it, in case you forget, we're going to hire all the creative, intelligent people we can find, and we're going to put them in the advertising industry. <laughs> because, lest you forget, we're going to like peek at every little weakness you have, and we're going to convince you that you're going to be unattractive, insecure, and unloved, unless you get more stuff. <laughs> 
So that's the basic material worldview out there. And I bought right into it, and I was really good at it. I uh, you know, graduated top of my high school class in high school, went to a prestigious university, became that ultimate of world manipulator, rational technocrats, and engineer. <laughs> and I took my engineering degree, and I went to Washington, D.C., and I got a job in a consulting firm. So there we are, the best and the brightest, drawn to the nation's capital, rubbing shoulders with all the halls of power, advising corporations, talking to senators, clerking for judges. You know, these were the peers. These are where we were. We're there living the great material life. And we were yuppies, you know, young urban professionals, didn't have a care in the world, we're working hard, we're going out and enjoying all the pleasures of the world. And it became pretty clear pretty fast that uh, this maybe wasn't it. It was a little shallow. And you, you find out from your friend who's clerking for the judge or working for the senator, well, you know, a senator really has a drinking problem. He's, he's uh, kind of an alcoholic. And you know those corporate guys? Yeah, I've been working with these corporate guys. Man, are they ruthless. They are greedy. They are unscrupulous. They do anything they can to advance their, their position. And, you know, I worked for a consulting firm. I was going to do good in the world. It was an environmental consulting firm. And guess what? Sometimes we got hired by the EPA where we were sort of doing good things, but it was the Reagan years, and we weren't really doing all that good things. And the next day, we got hired by the coal industry, who was actually ran strip mines in Appalachia. And, you know, we were mercenaries. We just, you know, we made up the numbers that they wanted to see, and it all worked together. But, you know, it was disillusioning. You go keep meeting these people at parties and more pleasures and you keep having the same shallow conversations over and over again and and then you look uh we actually rented a house out in the suburbs uh some friends and i and you look at around you these people who are a little bit farther down this path of the materialist uh dream and they had mortgages and kids and big houses and they worked 10 or 12 hours a day and they had lots of stuff <laughs> and they just you know they weren't that happy. And you sort of look around and that is, as Yogananda put it, that sense of anguishing monotony sets in. So do I really want to keep doing this for a while or keep pursuing this? And, and, and what? So what? You know, I get two weeks vacation. That's terrible. <laughs> so I decided, all right, I'm out of here. And being a clever guy, I convinced the Rotary Club that they should pay for a year for me to go study in Europe. So I went to Europe for a while and to France and had all this, you know, paid uh, time. I took some classes, but I delved into a lot of things, learned a language, learned other cultures. I actually roomed with some uh, Muslim students from North Africa, which was quite a shift in worldview and that. And, you know, just to, had a chance to explore a lot of things. And as Dharmaraj says, that was the time when those up there, the great ones, said, you know, this guy might be ready for just a little bit of meditation. <laughs> so these little these books started coming into my life, and I, there was one about Zen, and there was one about from uh, TM, and the AY actually got mentioned, and I tried to read the, the autobiography of a yogi in French, but if you've ever noticed, the vocabulary in that book is quite difficult, and not to mention the concepts for my materialist brain, so I didn't get very far with it at that point. But I did find one book that just you know, like a lot of you probably have had that experience, boom, it just hit me. And it was, it was classic duality, too, how it came out. So I'm 
enjoying life in France and I'm visiting people. I met this woman that I wanted to go see and she happened to live on the French Riviera where she got sent. And so I went one weekend down to the French Riviera and I was going to go visit this woman. And it was, we didn't have telephones. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. So we didn't quite communicate. And I got there. I said, hi, you know, I'm here to visit. She said, well, I'm going to be gone for the weekend, but you know, you're welcome to come stay in my room if you want. And oh, by the way, there's, you know, a friend of mine down the hall probably be interested in meeting you and you know you might want to hang out with her she's a nice girl good looking so I said fine and <laughs> and so I closed the door I'm in the room and for some reason I'm looking around at her library or books and I find this book it was called The Only Dance There Is by uh, Ramdas by Richard Alpert and that was the book that appealed to me because Richard Alpert was uh, ex-Harvard psychologist had been with Timothy Leary and the drug experiments he had been in the academic materialist world, and he had given that up. He had gone to India, found a guru. This was the story of his uh, relationship and his teachings with a guru, and it just, it just spoke to me. It just answered all the questions, and it said, yeah, this is it. And so I'm there reading this book. I'm partway through it. There's a knock on the door. So I open the door, and here's this beautiful young lady there saying, you know, my friend said, you might want to come out and, you know, enjoy some of the things on the French Riviera on the town with me. And that could be a fun evening. And I looked at her, she, had, she was Polish, I think, nice French accent. She was speaking French, with Polish accent. It was, it was very charming. And, uh, you know, I had my book and I looked at, out the door and I said, no, thank you. I think I'm going to stay in the room and read. So she was very disappointed, but it changed my life, that book. And so I took up a, I got to be a, have a standard meditation or a regular meditation practice on my own, actually through transcendental meditation, because I really wasn't ready for God or any of that quite yet. I mean, I was still had this Christian background that said, God, no, no, bad. So anyway, I did manage to get a meditation practice going and started delving into some of the philosophies. And I spent a whole another year after my year in France traveling around the world. And I went to Northern Africa, went all around Europe. I went across the United States. I went to Asia. I found myself in China right after the, this was only a few years after the Cultural Revolution and the whole Maoist, uh, the whole Maoist thing was still very strong in China. People in blue suits and hats and lots of bicycles and not much else. And so anyway, I had all these experiences and I sort of got the feeling about, wow, you know, the world is a, it's a big place. There's a lot of problems in the world. There's a lot of uh, things. There's a lot of places that could really use my help. And I ended up going back and enrolling in a graduate program in Berkeley because I had to do something. I mean, I couldn't just meditate all my life. I wasn't there yet. And so meditation's going on, but I still have to do something with my life. And, you know, the corporate materialist world, that's not going to make it. But I could actually make a difference in the world. I, there's this, you know, I can see this. I've had this experience. I've been given all this knowledge. I've been given all these tools. I have this moral imperative to make things better. And I actually enrolled in a program, not in the business school where they're going to go out and be the corporate CEO, not in the engineering school where they're going to just be the hired guns. We are actually a department that was set up to solve problems. And we looked at, we were looking at energy and environmental problems, global warming, the energy crisis, the petroleum problems, and, and the development problems in the third world. And 
I dove into that with great gusto and there are very, very good people there. It was very fulfilling in some ways. And at the same time, I actually dove into a more of a yoga practice and gradually got involved with an ashram in Berkeley and more and more into the teachings and started realizing, wow, this really makes sense. This is, you know, this, this worldview, this way of looking at things, it's, it might even be truth. <laughs> at the same time, I'm in academia and we're exploring all these things and I kept wanting to get the bigger picture, not just solve the little problems, but all right, why are these problems happening? Where does this come from? It's people's desires. Why are so people so desirous of these material things? How does that happen? What, what is it that can get people out of that materialistic rat race? How can we change the world so that people can do this? And okay, here's yoga over here telling me all these things. And here's academia. And I kept trying to find ways I could get yoga into the <laughs> academic debate. And I'd read all these books and I'd find out, you know, people said this and they said that. And, Academics are really good, as Swami says, at tearing things apart. They can analyze things. Like that, that's not it. It's neti neti to the best. So that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. But they're not very good at coming up with something like, okay, this is it. And the best that they could come up with in all these books I was reading, you know, I was expanding out into social philosophy, and the best they could come up with is some vague allusion to maybe we can find some universal human values that we can all agree on and that can be the basis for our system but there was no way to get into that debate the truth because it was still founded in materialism it still said we have to be objective we have to be out of this we can't talk about our feelings we have to be separate and we have to observe and then we have to experiment and maybe we can come to something that we can do with that well you know, it didn't work for me. The other thing that was really incredibly disillusioning about all that was that, again, they were people, and they were well-meaning people. They were better than the, the people I had met in Washington, but it was still a system that said, you personally, you ego professor, have to have original ideas of your own, and it's I am better than you, so I'm gonna get promoted and not you. It was very competitive. It was cutthroat. It was trying to promote, you know, their own originality, their own ego. Those precedences took precedence over finding truth, as Dharmaraj was saying often. It's not, you know, they would say, well, my promotion is this, and, you know, I should stay here, and I should do this. I don't want to go to live in Africa and help the people that really need, might need some help there, but I'm going to stay here in academia and teach these things. So it was, you know, and they were also alcoholics and involved in drugs, and they weren't happy. And, you know, it just wasn't very satisfying. So I kept looking at yoga. I kept looking at this. And I kept trying to bring it in. And it didn't work. And I just, you know, finally gave up. But there was still this part of me that said, you know, you should really be doing good in the world. You have to, like, change the world. And it took me a really long time. It actually took me finally getting to Ananda to say, to get to the clarity to say, you know, as yoga teaches us, consciousness is the higher part of this. It is not going to be the system. It's not going to be manipulating the material word, world. It depends what consciousness people are coming from. And you have to change that consciousness. And that consciousness has to move closer to truth. And there's lots of good things we can do in the world. There's lots of people still, we still have to solve all these crises. We still have to deal with it. 
But the fundamental way you're going to do it is not changing the system. It's not getting the right idea. It's changing consciousness. So thanks finally to my wife and to others, I got out of Berkeley and moved to Ananda. I was still, I brought my thesis with me. I was still supposed to be writing this thing. <laughs> but environment is stronger than willpower. <laughs> and I finally got out of that one and into this one. And it was uh, this realization after many long talks with many people was I could really do more, be more good in the world changing my consciousness and thereby affecting other people's consciousness than trying to be a power broker and put ideas out there and change all these things. And the final, the final straw was, was about this time when I was trying to still write my thesis, Kriyananda wrote uh, Religion in the New Age. And that's the book where he talks about the yugas and the implications of the yugas, just a little pamphlet. And I read that book and I just went, oh, this is what's going on here. And here I am still, you know, doing this. There, I mean, this is way bigger than, <laughs> than what I've been dealing with. And at that point, I tried to fit it in, but I just gave it up. I just said, okay, yoga, these philosophies make a whole lot more sense than anything else I'm trying to do, I'm gonna stop trying to change those and I'm gonna start living these. I'm gonna start living the best I can to that truth, keep attuning myself to that truth, keep rejecting all these things that don't fit with that truth and we still need to do that. You need to do that every day. You need to interpret that. How's the best I can live it? What's my best understanding of the truth? We're not gonna know it exactly. We're not masters yet. But keep attuning to that truth. Keep trying to live that truth. Keep practicing, keep reminding yourself, as David, you said, don't forget, why are we here? What is truth? What makes sense? And if you practice that truth, you'll be happier and the world will be a better place.